Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Y'all, it is so great to see all of you here today. I have to admit, it's a little bit weird only having one service and having nothing in between. I can't let myself get used to this, coming in a little bit later, being a little bit easier of a morning in some ways. But it's so great to see all of you here today. Great to have one service as we are together. Um, I'm sure you've noticed that there is some Christmas decorations. I don't even know who all were a part of that, but I'm thankful for the ladies who came up and, and decorated this week as we are getting ready to move into our Christmas season. I'm excited about our our Christmas sermon series that we're going to be starting next week. Hopefully you will be with us as we move into a four-week sermon series on that that will culminate on Sunday, uh, on Christmas morning, whenever we have a, a service together. But this week we've been thinking about Thanksgiving, and this morning I get a chance to have a standalone sermon, which doesn't happen very often. So I'm excited about that opportunity. You know, with Thanksgiving, I'm sure like, like many of you, one of the things I think about when I think of Thanksgiving I think, is I think of Black Friday. I think of the shopping that oftentimes occurs afterwards. Now, I'm sure many of you maybe went out and you shopped, but a lot of you probably did like what I did. I shopped from my phone in the comfort of my home, just looking through. One of the best things about Black Friday is you can find the discounted prices and all of your favorite brands and things that you like, right? You can look up different things. I know I was on Banana Republic for a little while. I was on Vineyard Vines for a little while, looking for all these sales of certain things that maybe fit me a certain way or whatever it might be. And as I was looking over stuff this week, I thought about How interesting it is that brands have the power that they do. Have you ever noticed how much power is in a brand? Right, oftentimes we buy things because of the brand. Even brands themselves try and make a name for themselves by imprinting their brand on everything that they produce, right? That's all that an imprint is. An imprint is whenever you put your logo or or what identifies you onto something, right? It's amazing how much People actually will pay for something that has a certain imprint on it. And companies do this. They do this really well. I read this week of a five-year-old girl who came home from kindergarten, and the assignment that she had to do with her dad was he had a list of different brands and stuff, and he had to see how many brands she could identify as a five-year-old, and she identified over 100 different name brands. That isn't just brands of clothes. I mean, that can include like Jell-O. It can include great value. It can include all these other things. But brands have a crazy power. They stick with us. A 2016 survey says that a 10-year-old has already memorized between 300 and 400 different brands. You see, brands are identifiers, right? They tell you something about either the quality or the manufacturer. They tell you something. Just as Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour attire, all of them have their imprint on something. Friends, the church is called to have the imprint of Christ on us. This is the same way an imprint says where something is from, who it represents. The church is to have the imprint of Jesus Christ himself on us. The question I want us to ask and consider this morning is, do we, as Christ's church, have his imprint on us? How can we know if we do? What does the imprint of Christ even look like? The title of the sermon this morning is Imprinted by Christ. Imprinted by Christ. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. As I began to think about the topic of thanksgiving in this season and pray through this, Colossians 3 was one of the first passages that popped up in my mind. And as you're turning to Colossians 3, there's several things that you need to know before we jump into it. Paul is the author of this letter. He wrote to the church of Colossae, big shocker, since it's called Colossians. What's odd about this letter, though, is Paul did not plant this church, neither had he visited this church. 
That's what makes it unique from the other letters. So Paul's writing to a church that he'd never been to. He didn't plant. Why is he writing the letter? Well, you see in the first chapter, he says, I'm so thankful because I've heard about how God has increased your faith. I've heard about how the gospel has come here and how it's flourishing, and I'm so thankful for that. But we also know he's writing to them because he says there are false teachers within their midst. See, the church of Colossae was only about five years old whenever Paul wrote this letter. And already some false teaching was coming in about Christ and about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And so in Colossians chapter 3, we see, we see that Paul is talking about their identity in Christ. We see in chapter 1, chapter 2, he goes through great pains to talk about who Jesus is. Then chapter 3, verse 3, he makes this comment. He says, if you have died to yourself, then you are alive in Christ. Literally, he says, you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. In other words, your life should be imprinted by Christ. It should look like Christ. Then he proceeds to talk to them about what they should put off and what they should put on as followers of Jesus. What's interesting about this language is the word put off and put on is the same lingo the Greeks would have used for taking off clothes and putting on new clothes. He's saying as a follower of Jesus, as, as being identified with Christ, having his imprint, there are certain things that should not mark your life anymore, and there are certain things that should. Now, many of you have maybe heard of this before, thought about this before. Ephesians 4 talks about this extensively. But what's unique about Colossians 3 is he talks about this in a collective manner. As the church of Jesus Christ, there are things that should not be in this room anymore, and there are characteristics that absolutely should. It's incredible how he talks about this. Look with me, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Notice how communal these verses are. He begins by saying, put these things off, verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, he says, put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see how communal all these verses are. You see how these aren't just characteristics that are for you. They are in relation to you in relation with the people that are around you. How your relationship with Christ should greatly affect the people around you, especially the people who are part of the family of God. Now, the four points that we're going to look at, the four verses we're going to look at, are the last four that we see right here. I want you to notice how he concludes this section of this part of the letter. Look at verse 14 through 17, and this will be our text for this morning. He says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What I want you to see this morning is you're going to see four imperatives for the church that Paul gives here. Four imprints, if you will, that should mark the body of Christ. 
and how all of these are marked and brought together by the topic of thankfulness. You'll see that whenever we get towards the end. The first point, four imperatives for the church. Look at the first point in verse 14. He says, and above all these. Now think about that. He just laid out a massive list of what they're called to put off, what they're called to put on, being compassionate, being forgiving, being humble. He says, above everything else, put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The first imperative for the church is simply this. Be clothed in the love of Christ. The first imprint, if you will, of God's people is we should be clothed in the love of Christ. It's pretty incredible for him to say above everything else, above everything else, put on love. The most important characteristic of the church is not a hard question to even think about. It is easy. It is love. The number one characteristic that should define the people of God is love. The way we treat each other, serve each other, interact each other, should all be done in love. As a spiritual family, this is one of the reasons that we should prioritize coming and being together is because we should love each other. We're unified in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're this, that, or the other, Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scathian, Jew. He goes through all of these things. He says, you are united in Christ and you should love each other. Y'all, do you know how incredibly important this is? It's so important that at the very end of Jesus' life, John 13, 34 through 35, he's talking to his disciples. And he says, a new commandment I want to give to you that you need to love each other. In the same way that I have loved you, you should love one another. And don't miss the kicker. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. In other words, Jesus says, the distinguishing mark of someone who's a Christian is they will love people. It is the distinguishing characteristic that with this characteristic, you can see you cannot love people the way Christ calls you to love people without him in you. That's why John later on will say in 1 John chapter 4, 7, and I'll have this for you on the screen. He says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How important is love in your life? John would say, if you don't have love for your brothers, then you don't know Christ. He literally says that later on in the passage. He says, if you can't love people that you do see, how can you claim to love one, someone that you don't see? You know, this is the primary characteristic of the body of Jesus. If Christ is in our lives, his love should have an imprint on us. In the world, in the community, absolutely. But especially within the local body especially those who are brothers and sisters of Christ. You shouldn't find anybody in this world who loves quite like a Christian. So I want to ask you this morning, before we move any further than this, I just would ask you, do you know the love of Jesus? Do you know the love of Christ? The love that compelled him to leave that which was perfect in heaven to come down here and to pay your cost for your sin, your penalty for your sin on the cross. Do you know that love? The love that though you cared nothing for him and did not desire him and lived for yourself, he chose to come and show you his love by dying in your place. Romans 5.8 puts it this way. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Later on, Paul would tell you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be redeemed. 
This love will become a part of you. Whenever you place your faith in him, you receive forgiveness and you have new life. This love should come in you and should pour out inside of you. Friends, if you know Christ, your life will be marked by a love for him and a love for his people. But while this is a personal thing, this is also a corporate thing. The church should be imprinted by the love of Christ. Notice how Paul says this. Notice what he highlights here. Verse 14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Remember whenever Emily and I, before we got married, one of the best parts of being engaged is you get to go and register for things. It's pretty incredible. You got that, you feel like you have so much power. You take the little scanner around and you just like start scanning everything and then typically the wife or the future wife has to rein the man back because he's starting to scan everything or vice versa. I remember one of the things that I really wanted to get was a grill. That was one of those things that I put out there, and I was thinking maybe some cousin or somebody maybe would just feel bad for me and just buy me a grill. I don't know. It's one of those things you kind of just throw a Hail Mary out there and just see what happens. And sure enough, somebody bought us a grill. And I can remember whenever we uh, moved to North Carolina, I set up the grill, got it all ready to go, and I couldn't wait to begin learning how to grill things because I knew absolutely nothing about it. So Emily, as the meal planner, the plan was that she would go and get turkey burgers. I don't know if she remembers this or not, but I will never forget it. She goes and she gets some turkey meat for us to make turkey burgers. I can remember, I'm excited about this. I pull out this bowl, I throw the turkey meat in, I start getting all these spices and different types of things, throwing it all in, some Worcestershire, some Tony's, some whatever, you know, all these different things, and I start mixing it together, and I make all these, you know, little patties or whatever, and I throw it on the grill. I walk away and I come back three minutes later, and I'm slightly devastated as all of the turkey's just falling into the grill. I mean, it was bad. And so instead of having turkey burgers, basically we had ground turkey meat on a piece of bread is what it ended up being, what I could salvage. But I went to the internet afterwards, which I probably should have done on the front end, but I went and I looked afterwards, and whenever you grill something or whenever you smoke something, it's very important to have a binder, something that helps take all of the ingredients and hold it together. Specifically for turkey burgers, they are known for crumbling. You need to make sure you at least throw an egg or some type of binder in it to hold everything together. Friends, I want you to listen the way Paul is talking about love. He says, love is the binder that holds everything else together. In other words, it doesn't matter how compassionate you are. If you don't have love, you've missed it. It doesn't matter how humble you may be. If you don't have love, you've missed it. The glue for God's people is love. Paul's spoken about this before in some pretty extravagant ways. 1 Corinthians 13 is often quoted at weddings or whenever we just talk about love, but we don't need to take it out of its context. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth who's struggling with arrogance and pride of people saying, look how gifted I am in this. Look how gifted I am in this. Look how gifted I am in this. And Paul wants to bring them back down to earth to say, it doesn't matter how gifted you are or how much you accomplish, if you don't have love, you're nothing. Listen to how he says it. Listen to how extremely he actually says it. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm just making noise. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to even remove a mountain, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, even if I deliver up my body to be burned, to be a martyr, but if I don't have love, I gain nothing. What's Paul saying? He's saying love is the distinguishing mark. Without it, nothing else that you do matters. 
If we miss the very essence of Christianity, which is love, then what we do is going to be missing the primary ingredient, the thing that holds everything else together. You could put this for the church. It doesn't matter how big our church gets, how big a budget gets, how much ministry you're doing, how many missionaries you send out, how many trips you take. If you do not have love, you've missed it. Think of it this way. If the very thing that distinguishes the believer from the world and binds everything else together is either polluted, diluted, or non-existent, we miss it. Ministry without love is anti-Christ. This is important for us to understand. And so I ask you personally, one, what about you? Does the imprint of Christ's love mark your life? Does the imprint of Christ's love mark your relationships with people who are in the church? Friends, we live in a world of self-love. People talk about self-love. There is nothing more anti-God than self-love. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God first, to love your neighbor second. Self-love doesn't play a role in that, does it? Do you love people the way Christ calls you to? I even ask that as our church, does our church have the imprint of Christ's love? Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with a love that can only be described as from the Lord? It should imprint our body. Without love, we're just a bunch of people who meet in the same building. With love, we become the hands and feet of Christ. We become his body. We become a spiritual temple. We are his people. As Christ followers, we should be imprinted by love. But notice what else he says, verse 15. Not only should we put on love, verse 15, he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Here we see the second imperative, the second imprint, and it's this. We're called to be ruled by the peace of Christ. First, he says, be clothed in the love of Christ. Secondly, he says, be ruled by the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your life. To understand what this means, you need to understand what the verb rule means there. The word rule means to be the director in your heart. Or another way to say it, most prominently that I've seen, is this would be let the word of Christ, or let the peace of Christ play the umpire in your heart. Now, I think all of us are probably familiar with umpires and referees. This is a really big long shot, I'm sure, but I'm sure at some point in your life you feel like a referee or umpire has wronged you or your team in some way. I'm sure that's probably happened at least once. I know that's rare. I've heard many people complain about umpires, complain about referees. I want you to imagine a sport without a referee. Now, you might say, man, that sounds awesome. Does it really? So you're playing baseball. Who calls a strike or a ball? Do we let the catcher say if it's a strike or ball now? I don't think that would work out very well, right? Do we let the batter? Goodness, no, we don't do that. You need somebody who's an intermediary there, right? Have you ever played pickup basketball where somebody says, hey, call your own fouls? It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. This is an unsolved mystery I'll never be able to understand. The roughest people in pickup basketball think they never foul anybody, and yet they're also the ones who call the most tic-tac fouls, right? It's an unsolved mystery. Friends, if you have a sport without a referee or an umpire, what you get is chaos. What is the purpose of a referee or an umpire? To know the rules, to enforce the rules, to do it unbiased, to support the game, to make sure it goes the way that it's supposed to go. So think about what, what Paul's saying here. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your hearts. 
In other words, let the peace of Christ call the shots in your heart. You can think about this in an individual way and in a corporate way. As individuals, whenever we are disobedient to the Lord, the peace of Christ will wreak havoc in our hearts. We'll feel an unrest. We'll feel an unease whenever we're not walking in the will of the Lord. Now, this begins as a non-believer. You begin to feel conviction over your sin. Conviction of sin, hopefully at some point, leads you to brokenness over your sin. This hopefully leads you to repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus. But then whenever you become a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord himself lives inside of you, and he will guard and convict your hearts. He will guide you, right? Whenever you're not being obedient to him, whenever you're not walking in step with him, you should feel an unrest. The Lord should feel distant from you. And he does this to call us back to himself. So I ask you this morning, do you have a peace of Christ within your own heart? Do you feel the peace of the Lord in your own life? If there's an uneasiness or there's an unrest, you need to ask the question, why is that the case? Is it that the Lord's trying to call me to himself to become a follower of his? Or is it that as a follower of his, I'm not walking in step with him? The peace of Christ will wreak havoc in our hearts. Let it play the umpire in your life. Be ruled by it. But I want you to notice, he, he primarily is talking about this in a, in a corporate way. Notice he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let it be the umpire in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. He's saying the peace of the Lord not only works in our hearts, but the peace of the Lord should unite us in the body of Christ. Kind of think of it like this. I'm sure all of you think at least something about somebody that you meet if you have a mutual friend. Let me say it a little bit differently because I think that came out very wrongly. Mutual friends matter, right? Let's say that you're on Facebook and you get a friend request. What is one of the things that Facebook makes sure to put on there? 36 mutual friends, right? Or one mutual friend, or 100 mutual friends, whatever it might say. Why do you think they put that on there? Because if you have mutual friends, what are you more likely to do? Add a friend, right? It's interesting you use that in that scope. This, this actually even applies in real life, though. Have you ever noticed how mutual friends can bond people together? A lot of people meet their future spouse through a mutual friend. I've had plenty of times where I've hung out with guys before that we have a mutual friend, a guy that I'm really close to, and another guy who's close to him as well. We start hanging out, and you just feel a closeness already. You feel this bond because of a mutual friend. What's interesting here is this is much of what, what Paul's saying here. This, this peace of Christ bonds all of us together. Let me explain it this way. Followers of Jesus are unified together through him. They experience the peace of Christ together through him. All of us were former enemies of God, but through Christ, we have a common friend. And through this mutual friend, Jesus, his peace has reconciled us to himself, and his peace should rule over our personal lives and cause us to have peace with one another as well. It should unify the body of Christ. It should be imprinted on the church. Whenever we are in God's will, we will have peace in our hearts and harmony in the church. But I want you to know this. There are times whenever you can be walking out of step with the Lord, and you can suppress the peace of God that he's trying to work in your hearts, the unrest. You can suppress that, but one area where you will not suppress it will be in the church. And what's interesting is he pulls out this note. The peace of Christ, let it play umpire in your hearts to which you were called together. Why does that matter so much? Because whenever you are out of step with the Lord, you will bring disharmony and disunity within the church. It will happen. 
Warren Wiersbe, famous pastor, says it this way, if we are out of the will of God, it is a certainty that we will bring discord and disharmony to the church. When our hearts are being ruled by him, though, we won't. You see, whenever your hearts aren't being ruled by the peace of God, what you'll find is the things he said earlier to put off, you will start putting on and you will bring it in here. What am I talking about? I'm talking about anger, slander, obscene talk, gossip, backbiting, grudges, unforgiveness, etc. All those things should not be inside of the church. It disrupts the peace of Christ whenever they are in the church. And what you see Paul is saying here is the peace of Christ should be the umpire in your life. If you're bringing disunity or disharmony, you should feel the unrest. You should see the unrest, and you should change that amongst yourself. Friends, the peace of Christ is so strong, it overrides any differences that we may have, and it should unify us together to walk together as one body. So I ask you, do you promote unity in the body? I ask you, what are you ruled by, his peace or something else? I ask you, is your relationship with others in the church ruled by the peace of Christ? Do your friendships, do you bring harmony and unity towards the body or disharmony and disunity? As followers of Jesus, we should be imprinted by his peace, and this should be felt both inwardly and seen outwardly. Look at the third imprint he gives them, verse 17, or verse 16, excuse me. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Here we see the third imprint, which is this, be indwelt by the word of Christ. Be indwelt by the word of Christ. First, be clothed in the love of Christ, then be ruled by the peace of Christ, and be indwelt by the word of Christ. Y'all, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite times of year. It's become one of my favorite holidays because it reminds me of home, makes me think about home more than anything else. And to clarify, whenever I say home, I mean the place that I call home. Whenever I say home right now, I'm talking about the spot that I live over there in Murray, Kentucky. I'm not talking about where I'm from or something else. It makes me want to be in my home with my family, right? There's something about Thanksgiving that does that. Now, for some people, maybe Thanksgiving and family makes you think of chaos. I heard one guy put it, former NBC host Johnny Carson, says Thanksgiving is an emotional holiday. People travel thousands of miles to be with people they only see once a year and quickly discover that only once a year is way too often. Hopefully that's not the case for you. One of the things I love about Thanksgiving, though, is it makes me think about the home. Y'all, a, a key part to understand what Paul's saying in verse 16 is the word dwell there means make your home. Let the word of Christ make his home in you. Let God's word have its home inside of you. So how much do you think you need to be in the word in order for the word of Christ to indwell inside of you, for God's word to make its home inside of you? I would ask you, how often do you go to your home? I do every single day. I wake up there and I go back there. I find comfort there. I find joy there. Friends, that's what the word of God should be in the heart of every believer. Let the word of Christ make its home inside of you. Come and dwell inside of you. And how? He says, let it dwell in you richly, abundantly. May it overflow in your heart. Peter O'Brien says it this way. Paul is saying that the gospel is to have its gracious and glorious way in your life. Let it dwell in you and rule over you. 
Now understand, even as I say that, many people go, okay, yeah, yeah, read your Bible. I want you to understand what's being said here. Do you understand what Paul is saying? The word of Christ, you should desire and you should want it to dwell, make its home inside of your own life. Friends, if it's not dwelling inside of you, I ask you this morning, why not? If you don't take delight in coming to God's word and letting it have its home inside of you, I ask you, why not? Paul's saying this should be the case for you. Now, we could talk a lot about that, but I want you to notice that there's something in here that I think that we often miss whenever it comes to personal time in God's word. Notice that Paul points this out, and then he points to the corporate aspects of it, not the individual aspects of it. Unfortunately, due to the culture that we live in, we individualize Christianity so much. You know, the Bible knows nothing of an individual Christian. It knows the body of Christ. That's why the idea of a Christian who's not heavily involved in the life of a spiritual family, the church, is unknown in the New Testament. You can't even find an example of it in the New Testament. But what happens if you let the word of Christ dwell in you? Look at the purpose. He says, let the word of Christ make its home in you richly. What's the purpose? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Friends, your time in God's word is not just about you. It is about the people who are around you. Your time in God's word will either positively affect the people around you or it will negatively affect them. I can remember hearing this one time, and, and I wrote down this question in my journal years ago. And the question was simply this, Merrick, if God wanted to use you to touch someone else with his word, would you know it well enough to be able to do so? Do you have enough tools in your arsenal to be able to meet the need of the person who's in front of you? Does the word of God have his home in you? Friends, think about that question for yourself. Does God's word dwell in your life? Are you able to teach and admonish? Admonish means to admonish or encourage or to instruct or to warn. God's word in you has an effect with those who are around you. We're to let his word have its home in us. I love how Paul expresses thanksgiving for the church in Rome about this very thing. In Romans 15, verse 14, he says it this way. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Yo, that's the end goal. The goal of a church is not to have a pastor or a few trained people or a few elite people that know something about the Bible. The goal is to have a common people who have the word of God dwelling inside of their hearts that they might be able to teach and admonish one another. Now, you should have people in your life who can teach and admonish you with the word. I ask you, are you that type of friend who can do that? If someone comes to you, no matter what's going on, do you have the word of God inside of you that it can come out in that moment to give to them? I ask you, do you have friends in your life whenever you go to them to talk to them? Do you have friends that have the word of God dwelling in them that this is what comes out whenever you come to talk to them? It matters. It matters. Notice what else. Notice what else he says here, coming from being indwelt with the word. He says it bursts out in singing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then further down, he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Y'all, music is and always will be a crucial aspect of God's people coming together and worshiping. Indeed, it is the natural response of one who has what? The word of Christ dwelling in their hearts. 
In other words, Paul is making a connection. Whenever the word of Christ dwells in people's hearts, it comes out in singing. And notice he says three things here, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Whenever he says psalms, he's just talking about the psalms from the Old Testament. It would have been a common practice to sing these psalms. One of the things that I've really been excited about is Shane and Shane is one such group, but there are several groups over the last 10 years who have taken psalms out of God's word and they're making music to them using the exact words. And that's hard to do if you read through the psalms and try and sing them. But they're bringing the psalms back to life through singing. The word hymn here means a song that gives praise, honor, or thanksgiving to God. Now, I know this is a shocker, but there were hymns before the Baptist hymnal. Hymns have always been a part of the Christian faith. But a hymn is not a specific song or when something was composed. A hymn is a song that gives praise, honor, or thanksgiving to God. A spiritual song is a song that could have a spiritual theme. This might not directly praise God, but it will teach doctrine, encourage the body, or prompt others towards love and good works. But I want you to notice, and I think this is important, where does, what does Paul pray, place the premium on whenever it comes to worship in the church? The simple question he gives us is, are these songs saturated by the word of Christ? Do the songs that we sing come from a heart that is dwelt in with the word of Christ? It should be clear to note that the Bible never speaks once about the style of worship in the church. Never once. You'll never find it. The Bible doesn't speak anything about saying when a work was composed, when a song is composed, having more emphasis than whenever something else was composed. No. What makes for a spiritual worship song or a hymn or a song? It's simply this. It's the content of it. Is it word-saturated worship? Does it glorify Jesus and does it edify the body? Friends, this is a word we need to listen to. In other words, you can have a preference of how you like worship, but if you judge worship based on a style rather than content, you are missing what Paul is saying here. If you judge worship based on something other than does it edify Christ, does it bring out biblical truth, then we're putting up the wrong barometer. I've seen young people scoff at older songs because they sound funny or they sound archaic or whatever it might be. Friends, that's just silly. Not only is it silly, it's unbiblical. The question is, does it edify? I'm not asking you about, about what it sounds like or the style of it. Does it edify? What are you judging it by? I've seen older people scoff at newer music, like somehow older hymns are somehow inspired by God whenever they're not any more inspired than what somebody can write today. Friends, this is just as silly. It's just as unbiblical. The question isn't, does the style meet my preference? The question is, is does it lift up Christ? Is it word-saturated? Does it, does it edify the Bible? I've heard some people say, well, those songs, the newer songs now have more fluff in them. Well, hear me, guys. There's a reason whenever your minister of music stood up, said, turn to page 418. We're going to sing stanza one and stanza four of this song. You want to know why? Because oftentimes stanza two and stanza three was either weird, heresy, or it was just off. I'm going to be honest. Go read them. I've done it before. It's amazing how oftentimes we have certain songs that we think so highly of, and if you go read them, sometimes they're not as good as we remember them being. What I would tell you guys, whenever it comes to worship, whenever it comes to music, we can't say, oh, this is fluff, or oh, that is heresy, whatever it might be. The question we come to is, is the worship word saturated? Does it lift up the name of Jesus? Does it edify the body? That doesn't mean we can't have stylistic differences and preferences. It just means we let love be the binder in our midst and not a style. 
It means we let love bind us together, not a genre. It means we let the peace of God be the ruler, not our preferences. It means we let the word of God be primary in our worship, not a stylistic concern. Paul is simply saying, be indwelt with the word so that you can share it with others. And this will come out of your hearts in singing and encouraging and admonishing one another. So I ask you this morning, are you indwelt with the word of God? Do you share the word of God with others? Do you have enough in your arsenal to be able to share it with them? Do you delight in music that glorifies Jesus and his word saturated? As Christ followers, we're called to be imprinted by his word. Which leads to the last point that Paul makes here in verse 17. He says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is imprint number four, and it's this, be motivated by the name of Christ. Be clothed in the love of Christ, be ruled by the peace of Christ, be indwelt by the word of Christ, and be motivated by the name of Christ. It's pretty amazing how clearly Paul puts this. Whatever you do, whether it's in your speech or in your actions, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything you do should be to bring him honor and glory. It should be about his name. But you think of it like this. Endorsements are a big thing in our world today. What you find oftentimes is prominent athletes specifically are the main ones you think of whenever you think of endorsements. Whenever an athlete begins to get an influence or a following based on their ability, oftentimes people will ask them to be endorsed by them. It's Nike or Adidas or Under Armour or Reebok or whatever it might be. Now the point of this is they want people to be influenced to buy their product. One of the things that we've seen, though, even here very recently, but also in the past, what you'll see is whenever somebody is endorsed by a particular brand, they're expected to walk in a certain way. They're expected to act a certain way. And if they act a certain way that the brand doesn't like, whether it's right or wrong, the brand oftentimes will drop them. In other words, whenever you're endorsed by somebody, you represent more than just yourself. If they have Nike on their shirt, on their clothing, if they're on a Nike commercial, then they represent more than just their self right? Friends, I want you to think about this. You and I represent the name of Jesus. Many people have heard this verse. Many people probably know this verse. I want you to stop and think about that. The way you live says something about Christ. The way you live is either an endorsement for living for Christ or an endorsement for the opposite if you call yourself a Christian. Now, I want you to think about this. How important and precious is a name? How important and precious is your name? I'll tell you this. I'll go to battle if a lie goes out about me. There are times where you just take it on the chin and you move on, but then there are times where you want to make it right because why? Your name matters. If you find out somebody's called your integrity into question, it makes you frustrated. Why? Because your name matters. Song of Solomon, it's interesting. One of the things that the woman delights in about her lover, about her husband, she delights is that his name is as good and pure as gold. Why would that matter? Because a name means everything, doesn't it? You lose your name, you lose your influence, you lose your identity in many ways, right? Because do you care if people say something about you that's wrong? Do you care if you're misquoted? Do you care if you're misrepresented? Every single one of us would say absolutely. 
Think about this. The way you live says something about the name of Jesus. Everything you do, listen how he says it, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why should we do everything in his name? Well, because Jesus is the Lord and Savior of all. He is our Lord. He is to be followed. Those who are believers in him should seek to conform every aspect of their lives to their Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we do this, that's whenever we bring him glory. We should seek to make every single aspect of our lives be so in line with Christ that whenever people see us, the name of Jesus is glorified. They see him. We represent him, and therefore, we should be very aware of how we do so. And we should do it, as Paul has already said, marked by love, ruled by peace, guided and indwelt with the word of God in our hearts. This is what should bring us together above everything else, saying, guys, we are about something more. Westside Baptist Church is the name of our building. It's the name of where we gather, but we represent the name of Jesus Christ. That should pull together any differences that we have, right? That should pull together any issues that we have, right? It should be a motivator to, to come together and live for Christ, right? Think of it like this. I, I'm a big fan of the Olympics. I think a lot of people probably are a big fan of the Olympics. There's a documentary that came out recently called Redeem Team. Some of you may have heard of the Dream Team, which I believe is the 92, excuse me if I'm off, I think it's the 92 Olympic team basketball team, but there was the Redeem team in 2008. And I watched this documentary because these are all guys who I watched growing up play basketball. And I remember some of the storyline, but the storyline was that Team USA lost in 2004 in the Olympics for the first time in our history. They lost again in 2006 in the World Games. And so 2008, there was a, an assembled team called the Redeem team who was to go and play for USA and to win and to restore, if you will, the name of USA Basketball. But the issue that they had in the previous years was they had NBA players who just didn't mesh whenever they came together. They all played their own style. They played for their own name, if you will. They played their own way. They played not as a team. But what's neat and one of the things that draws or that the documentary really draws a lot on is how this team talks so much about their identity. Their identity was not about the name on the back of their jersey. Their identity was about the name on the front of their jersey is it had to no longer be about you, you, or you. It had to be about Team USA. It didn't have to be about how you played or your stats. It had to be about representing something that was bigger than yourself. Put aside your differences. Put aside your issues. Come together and bring the name of the USA glory, if you will. Friends, that is a very similar thing for us in the church. Not a single thing in our church should be done for my name or for your name, but for only his name. Whenever we live for Christ, it's not about the name on the back of the jersey, if you will. It's about the name on the front. Our motivation and everything is to say, I want to make the name of Jesus as pure as it really is. I want to lift the name of Jesus up for what it is worth. I want people to know Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of all, and I want them to come to know him. How do you do that? You live for his name. You're aware that you represent his name, and you live your life imprinted by his love, his peace, and his word. Friends, I simply ask you, does how you live bring honor or dishonor to the name of Jesus? Do your words honor him or dishonor him? Do your actions honor him or dishonor him? How do you represent Christ? Because see, here's the key difference. As followers of Jesus, we are imprinted with his name. And we need to live in light of that fact to represent him well.
Last thing I want you to notice about this whole text, we skipped over it, it got brought up three times, is the word thankfulness and the thread of thankfulness through this text. Verse 15, you see him say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your hearts towards God. Verse 17, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, thankfulness is the attitude of the follower of Jesus. Thankfulness is the attitude that is brought through. It's the attitude of this passage. It's the continual expression of the Christian's heart. That no matter what, we have a great reason to be thankful. How's that the case? Well, whenever it comes to love, we all know that we are more loved than we ever deserve. And for that, you can be thankful at all times and all seasons. How can you have the peace of Christ at all times? Well, we can know that no matter what, Jesus has brought us peace with God. The greatest need that we had is peace with God. We can be thankful at all times for him. We can be thankful that the only reason we can know his word, the word of life, is because he's given it to us and he's given the spirit inside of us that we might be able to understand it. We can be thankful at all times and in all seasons, encouraging and admonishing and singing to him. And we can be thankful because we get to be a part of something that will last for all eternity, representing the name of Jesus. We can be thankful because if we are in Christ, we are imprinted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Does his imprint mark you? Does his imprint mark us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, Lord, we praise you. God, as we get to look at this text, Lord, and I pray that you help us just see how grand, how great it is to be a part of the body of Christ. How great it is to be a part of the church. I pray that we get to see the calling that we have as followers of you. It's not just an individual pursuit. It's not just about us. If at all, it's more about the church than just about us. Our relationship with you is just as much about other people as it is about ourselves. It's just as much about the body of Christ, the church, as it is about ourselves. Lord, help us look within ourselves this morning. And help us simply ask these questions. Are we imprinted by you? Are we imprinted by your love? Are we imprinted by your peace? Are we imprinted by your word? And are we imprinted by a single desire to make your name known? By living in complete submission to you. Father, help us this morning respond how you want us to respond. Convict us where we need conviction. Lord, help us respond. We ask all these things in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. As usual, as the band begins to play, and before we stand and sing, I just want to ask you a few things. Just as a recap, ask about this. This is a time for you to respond. How is the Lord calling you to respond this morning? Do you have the imprint of Christ in your life? Ask yourself this morning, are you clothed with the love of Christ? Do you love others, especially those of the family of God? Is your life marked with that? Would people say that about you? Man, they love the body of Christ. If not, I would ask you, why not? This is the single greatest characteristic of any believer. It's the distinguishing mark that helps us see we are his. It shows that you know him and you love him. Are you clothed with his love? If not, why not? You know, for some of you this morning, maybe the possibility is 
You don't have love in your life because you don't know the one who is love. So being able to love others begins with being connected to the one who is love himself. And that's Jesus Christ. You can do that this morning by repenting and placing your faith in him. Secondly, I'd ask you, are you ruled by his peace? Whenever you feel unrest in your hearts, do you stop and pause and think, am I out of step with what the Lord wants me to do? Am I disobeying him in some way? If not, why not? If the spirit of Christ is in us, he will lead and guide us. I ask you, do you bring harmony and unity, or do you bring disharmony and disunity into the body of Christ? If you find that you do a lot more complaining than encouraging, I would ask you very clearly, look at your heart. Are you indwelt with the word of God? Does God's word have his home inside of you? If not, why not? What changes maybe do you need to make? That's a very easy and clear change. If we're not spending time in God's word, make the time. I understand life is busy. Trust me, I'm there with you. My study time isn't at work. My study time is at home before I ever come to work. Do you set aside time to be with the Lord each day, to put his word in your heart? Do you delight in it to give it to other people? Do you surround yourself with people who can give it back to you? Do you delight in worship that lifts up the name of Jesus? Are you indwelt with his word? And lastly, I'd ask you, are you motivated by his name? Do you realize the responsibility inherently upon you if you are a follower of Jesus? You represent his name. How do you do it? Do your words and actions represent him well? Or do they not? If not, why not? And lastly, I ask, is thankfulness the attitude of your heart? Is it the posture of your life that no matter what, you can stop and say, I have greater reason to be thankful because of him and because of what he's done? I'll be down here. Luke will be down here if you want to come and talk to one of us. Maybe you just want to stay seated when everybody else stands. Maybe you want to come and pray. I don't know how the Lord is calling you to respond, but I would challenge you. Respond however you feel led to do so as we stand and sing at this time.